0: Hello, and welcome to Somatic. This is a special episode, and we're making it the week before the November 3rd, 2020 U.S. presidential election. In this episode, we want to focus on the prevalence of sporting metaphors in American political discourse. It's always called a presidential race, with politicians running for office. Now, in October 2020, we've reached the final stretch of the race. You can hear these sporting metaphors all the time in the media coverage. The people seriously Mm -hmm. think that you are going to run for office
1: to the race for 2020, just four days now until the Iowa caucus is hard to believe, and polls tonight showing Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in a close race. A new CBS News Battleground tracker poll out today looks at the presidential race in three states heavily impacted by the coronavirus. As the campaigns head into the final stretch of the election. Could Donald Trump still win this? Sure, I'm one of those folks, competitors, it's not over
0: till the bell rings. Here's the thing. A presidential election is not a sport. It's about choosing who will be at the executive branch at the federal government. So why do we talk about it with sporting metaphors? Why do we talk about politics as if it is a sport? Why does the media promote this kind of sportified political discourse? And ultimately, who benefits from all of this? To understand why political discourse in this country is so sportified, we have to go back in history to the antebellum period.
1: You know, to understand what happens in the antebellum era, you, you need to know what happened before that because there's sort of a reaction.
0: This is Professor Kenneth Cohen, Associate Professor of History and Director of Museum Studies and Public History at the University of Delaware. He's also a curator at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. In 2017, Cohen published a book on the history of colonial and antebellum sporting culture titled they will have their game sporting culture and the making of the american republic
1: you know during the revolution uh the notion of political parties and campaigning for oneself both of those things are, are pretty unseemly they come across as overly ambitious power hungry even corrupt the idea which still exists in british parlance is is that candidates quote stand for election right and that's like a passive experience Um, Candidates get nominated by other people, those other people advocate for them, uh, and other people doing all of that is supposed to underscore how much the community wants this particular candidate in office and they don't need to go seek it themselves. And if they do, then that's a strike against them because it shows that they don't have enough support in the community and they need to go do it themselves. Two things change in the US uh, in the late 1810s and 1820s. Um, that, that sort of alter this culture of, of how a candidate is supposed to behave and, and that opens up the possibility for this sporting metaphor and this sporting discourse of, uh, of electoral politics in the US. So political parties do emerge in the US uh, and the first set of parties known as Federalists and Democratic Republicans, that first party system collapses after the War of 1812. Now, why it collapses is sort of less important to, to your question than what happened when it collapsed, um, which is that that parties exercised less control over candidacy. And so there's more candidates running for office because the parties can't sort of control and get just the one person to run under their banner because the parties are falling apart. At the same time, uh, the property requirements to vote uh, gradually are giving way to universal white male suffrage. So race and gender basically are replacing wealth and class as the definition of who could vote in the United States. And the inclusion of poor white guys in the electorate exponentially increases the number of voters. While the fact that new voters were poorer meant that they were less likely to be in the social orbit of the candidates, so they don't know them as well. So these new poor white male voters had no problem with self campaigning. In fact, in some cases they start to demand it because otherwise it seems to them like these wealthy elite candidates are being aloof or snobby or distant and they don't want to engage with them and so together then the the simultaneous expansion of the number of candidates for office and the expansion of voting rights amongst white men meant that fewer voters personally knew fewer of the candidates and cultural taboos against self campaigning were being loosened. So the sporting metaphor arises as a result of these trends partly because it accurately depicted the more direct sense of competition as candidates were now actually out there competing against one another on their own behalf. So now you have candidates who are running for office actively, rather than standing for office passively. But partly also the sporting metaphor emerges because it helps candidates connect to voters they don't know. Now conceiving electoral politics as sports helps candidates connect because Sporting events were, and mostly still are, hyper-masculine settings. They're super popular amongst men. And so when you have voting rights restricted to white men, candidates are very quick to start to appeal to voters they don't know by describing their platforms and policy positions in sporting terms. So you get these political cartoons that show the favored candidate holding a better hand at poker. And the cards are labeled with policy positions about internal improvements or taxes or voting rights. The whole point of these political cartoons and the speeches that come along with them are that they sort of code political language and policy language in sporting terms that it's assumed most men understand well. And so it's a way to reach these new voters by talking about politics and elections as sports. So candidates describe their issue positions in relatable sporting terms. They present themselves as sporting champions, right? This is like a charisma thing, right? Andrew Jackson likes to take his shirt off on the campaign trail and show his battle scars. Like, um, you know, there's a a machismo here that um, is, is pretty extreme. And then also there's a range of new engaging political activities that are intended to mobilize voters that are using sports. They're based at taverns. They're based at horse races. You get racehorses that are named for political candidates or for political issues or for political causes. Um, All of this is to drive up turnout because, remember, turnout wasn't high in presidential and congressional elections in this period. All politics really were local until about 1828. Turnout for the presidential election was below 40%. And it was below 50% for Congress. As these sporting metaphors take hold, as the uh, universal white male suffrage takes hold and these worlds start to collide, voter turnout jumps to between 60 and 80%, which is the highest it's ever been in American history. And so sport is a real tool for getting people to the polls, engaging them in the political process, and making them feel like they understand what's going on and they have a say.
0: So what I'm hearing from Dr. Cohen here is that there's an important historical link between universal white male suffrage and the rise of the sporting metaphor in American political discourse. This means that the question of sportified political discourse in U.S. history is inextricably tied to important issues concerning race, gender, and the right to vote.
1: You know, as I mentioned before, the the rise of the sporting metaphor for electoral politics is linked to a shift in the voting eligible population from being defined by owning property to being defined by um, race and gender. And people often forget that uh, more African-Americans and even white women had voting rights in 1800 than in 1840. So in 1800, black men, if they could meet the property requirements, which of course was uncommon, but nevertheless, if they could meet the property requirements, they could vote in 11 of 16 states. The majority of states allowed African-American men to vote if they met the property requirement in 1800. By 1840, as you have this shift towards white male universal suffrage, uh, black men can only vote in four of 26 states. And even New England states like Connecticut take voting rights away uh, from African-American men. So the timing of this disenfranchisement doesn't line up super neatly with the elimination of the property requirements to vote. It lags behind by a couple decades. And so I argue that there's something else at work in this trend. The timing is much closer to the fo- to following the alignment of this massive sporting culture with electoral politics. And so essentially I'm saying the white masculinity of sporting culture pushed racial disenfranchisement. And at the foundation of this effort is the fact that white men claimed the intellectual and physical control to be brawny and physical, uh, like aggressive one moment, and then restrained and polite the next. They could browbeat people at the polls, like literally, um, but then cast their ballot and claim to be part of this dignified proper voting process. At sporting events, rich guys write in their diaries and letters about going to the horse races and uh, taking their seat in the really expensive box seats or the stands, uh, and then going down to the infield and mucking around with the sort of uh, the masses, and these rich guys do that to taste the sort of thrill of unrestrained competition and behavior, and then they go back up to their pricey or socially excluded club stands where they play the part of the restrained elite. So white men define themselves as the one who can, as the, the only ones who can do both of these things, and that gets like entrenched in psychology and sociology, sort of the roots of these of these disciplines. Uh, You know, folks like Thomas Jefferson say, well, you know, African-Americans are inherently and uncontrollably over-emotional. They can't shift from from brawny to respectable. And so these kinds of racist opinions formally exclude African-American men from being able to do both of these things. They can't be both brawny and elite because they're excluded from the elite spaces. And white women are the reverse if they're not in the very best seats, they're assumed to be prostitutes or undignified working women. So what happens then is that the white masculine sporting metaphor for for politics that emerges in the 1820s essentially helps restrict voting rights because as electoral politics becomes seen as a kind of sport, The same boundaries and limits that white men had first, and here's the key, chronologically, first white men apply these boundaries in the sporting world. And then as politicians start to dip into the sporting world to mobilize people, those boundaries get transferred from the sporting world to the political world.
0: It's kind of strange to think about this history from the perspective of today, with the 2020 presidential election happening next week. When you watch news media, sporting metaphors abound in their coverage of the elections. Seemingly everyone sees the presidential election, all of these elections, as races between competing candidates running to the November 3rd finish line. But the thing is, we're talking about things like discourse, language, and metaphors. And questions of discourse, of sporting metaphors, they're not separate from questions of political and social ideology. Discourses can perpetuate and promote ideologies. Are we seeing now, with the sort of perpetuating of a sportified political discourse, are we seeing a resurgence of of that aggressive hypermasculine political culture from the antebellum period? Are we seeing a resurgence of that kind of hypermasculine, misogynist political culture? And is it being enabled by the sportification of politics with Trumpism being a really extreme example? Are we now witnessing the consequences of the legacies of this history? White supremacist groups, armed militias threatening to kidnap governors and descend on polling stations on election day it seems like there's this strange jump between the history of sportified political discourse from the early 1800s and today.
1: I love the way you talked about jump there because that's exactly right. And what happens is um, today we miss that jump, right? Because we look in the rearview mirror and you see the thing that's immediately behind you. And what's immediately behind you is this early 20th century world where politics were stayed and candidates were either not allowed legally or it wasn't appropriate culturally for them to be presenting themselves in the kinds of aggressive ways that they had throughout the 19th century. And what happens is there's a a whole set of reforms that are passed in the 1890s. This is when the secret ballot comes into place. This is when uh, they limit the sale of alcohol uh, within a certain radius of a polling place. Uh, enforcing laws against gambling on elections, which had been rampant and a whole part of this culture. So in the 1890s, there's an effort to sort of transform politics from this raucous, rollicking, hyper-masculine, sporting kind of experience to something much more dignified. And that's part of an effort at voter suppression, right? In the late 19th century, you have the emancipation of African Americans. You have increasing immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe and sort of lily-white Uh, middle class and elite folks use the notion of electoral reform as a way to create structures that inhibit or prevent or throw up barriers to other people voting. You know, you have this period between where we are now and the 19th century where lots of this behavior wasn't super common. Now, of course, it, it went on. It just didn't go on in formal politics, right? You have segregationists perpetrating political violence against African-Americans in both the North and the South um, in various ways, whether you're talking about de facto or de jure segregation um, in both the North and the South. But in terms of the formal political experience, right, that gets sort of literally whitewashed, right? And what's happened since the 1990s is we've seen a return of certain elements of, of what scholars are calling sportified politics, Right. So the laws from the 1890s remain in place, but now you have talk radio, cable news, and social media platforms that enable a kind of election coverage and engagement that looks like—I um, mean—that looks like Sports Center, right? And and that frequently uh, feature opposing pundits all screaming at each other in ways that encourage seeing and conceptualizing politics as a kind of dire team sport. And now there are threats that skirt the limits of the law or plunge through its loopholes or, you know, dare enforcement where mostly white guys are talking about showing up armed at the polls next week, quote, to keep an eye on things for their side, right? This is 1840s, 1880s type stuff. So first, there's been a return to experiencing elections as aggressive sports in ways that are traditionally seen as very masculine. And now that's led to more actual aggression politically in ways that harken back to the period before this era, this era of superficially polite electoral politics. And so I'd say again that, you know, this has to do with race and gender, right? This is, it was easy to present formal electoral politics as less raw and more polite in like the 1930s, 40s, and 50s when white folks largely agreed that they should have the power, or at least they thought they had the power, Now that demographic change in the country and the realities of state violence finally seem to be breaking through that white consensus, particularly with college-educated white women, there is a real fear amongst white men of the loss of power, uh, and the result is a return to this kind of muscular, masculine, threatening kind of politics. All this talk about politics today being like sports in the 1800s is not some kind of like quaint, funny story. Because of how heavily sports communicate physical masculinity, we need to recognize that sports being like politics makes politics more threatening and dangerous for certain groups of people, even as it also raises overall participation rates, which is statistically true, right? Voter turnout has gone up since the 1990s as this trend has emerged, but there are threatening, suppressive, and violent repercussions for that. And so there's a real trade-off here that we need to think about and discuss as we connect the dots between sporting masculinity and what goes on in electoral politics.
0: Historians and sociologists of sport have long illuminated the links between sport and white masculinity. Racism. Sexism. Colonialism. Sports in the United States have long been sites for the celebration of white masculinity. Sports have been mobilized to promote a kind of militarized form of American nationalism, especially during times of war. So it's not really surprising that the history of the sporting metaphor in American politics is linked to things like racism, the history of misogyny, the history of kind of a hyper-masculine political culture, the reinforcement of a white male electorate, and histories of voter suppression, particularly peoples of color. We're seeing it manifest through the dangers of Trumpism, white supremacists, militias, threats of violence in concert with the election today. In thinking about this history, it seems like if we are to make elections fair, if we are to make American society more equitable and inclusive, if we are to ensure people's voting rights, especially the voting rights of people of color, all of that may require that we transcend or rethink the sporting metaphor of American politics. Our thanks to Professor Kenneth Cohen for talking with us about this history and his book. We have a blog post with links to Professor Cohen's book, links about this history on our website somaticpodcast.com If you're interested in collaborating on an episode with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at somaticpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe, take care, and please vote. This has been Somatic.